The text is Psalm 63, 1 through 2, and the theme is water. Water. And when I say water, I have a certain image in mind. Uh, it's probably an image that was placed there by watching too much TV as a child, but uh, it's a man crawling across a desert with tattered and ragged clothes, and he's, on his, he's prostrate, and he's pulling himself along with his hands, and his he can barely talk. He sounds like he has laryngitis, and he's saying, water, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, water. It's the Psalm of David. Uh, we're told here the context of it. We don't always get the context uh, in the Psalms to know the reason for what was said and the writing, but here we do. It says it's when he was in the wilderness of Judah, which indicates that's the time when probably when he's fleeing from Saul and is on the run, and he has a bounty on his head, a death warrant written out by his father-in-law on him. And he says, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly or early. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Or could be in, in order to see you in the sanctuary. So the context there that it gives us is helpful because we know that he's fleeing, he's on the run, he's living in caves and holes in the ground, his, the pillows that he uses to sleep at night are rocks, and he's separated from society, he's separated from his wife, he's, um, he's, he doesn't have any freedom, he doesn't have good food, likely, and so on. But what bothers him the most is the loss of participation in the corporate worship of God's people. That's what he longs for. He's not able to do that, because that takes place at the tabernacle, and he's banished from there and everywhere else. And he misses it badly. Uh, many casual churchgoers today can't relate with that, with missing the corporate worship of God. They seem to be quite easy with missing the corporate worship of God. It doesn't bother them. It doesn't trouble them. That's why they're absent so often. And when they are absent, it's not because they have the same excuse as David, because they're prevented from attending. It's because they have other interests and priorities, and church just doesn't rank that highly. But David's banishment is exacerbated by the fact that he doesn't have a personal Bible in his hand like all of you do, that he can just, oh, I'm just going to have my quiet time. Anything that he would have known by the Word of God would have had to be memorized, he doesn't have personal Bibles. He doesn't have a smartphone where he can just check out see what's on Sermon Audio and listen to that in the cave while he's hiding out from Saul. Uh, he also had a high regard for the Sabbath day, which is sorely lacking in our day. And so those were all a grief to him, and that all sheds light on his words, My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. And he's literally in a dry and weary land. He's in a physical desert wilderness. But that is emblematic of his spiritual uh, circumstances. The land was dry and barren, and he felt that his soul was also dry and barren because he was cut off. And that's where most of us find ourselves today. Dry and barren. Just like David, though under different circumstances and maybe for different reasons. 
which raises the question, how is that possible? How is it possible to have as many Bibles as we do? How is it possible to be able to get all those good books up there in the bookstore, and if not there, elsewhere? And to just simply download something on, you know, from the internet as a PDF to read, and to have all kinds of sermons, praise God, available to us through sermon audio, and yet be dry and barren. How is that possible? And there's lots of answers that could be given to that. But I want to focus on the simplest one, and that's that which is implied in the text. There's no water. It's because there's no water. That's why we're dying of thirst, because there's no water. And the one vital uh, missing element in all of our religion is missing, and that is the Holy Spirit. And why is he absent? Why is there no water? Because we've grieved him, apparently, and quenched the Spirit. And that's why pastors preach good sermons that are exegetically sound that don't change anybody, including myself in this. That's why the Spirit is not present. He's not present to empower the sermons. That's why there's so few conversions in our day. The Spirit is not present to convict. That's why the prayer meeting has disappeared from most churches. And where it has continued, it's poorly attended. And often, it's just a small gathering of people who are preoccupied with everyone's health problems. There's no water. We find ourselves unable to pray in the Spirit, as we're told to do, because the Spirit has withdrawn. We live in a dry and weary wasteland called America, where there is no water. And since there is no water, we're dying. You can't live without it. Our churches are dying. Christianity is dying in the West. And over and over again in Scripture, and you know this, the, script, the Spirit is compared with water. When He was poured out in Acts 2, that's exactly the point. He was poured out as, as if water. Jesus compared the Spirit with water in John seven thirty seven and through 39 when He stood up at the feast and He cried out and He said, He who believes in Me, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to Me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The Spirit is the living waters flowing out from the people of God who believe in him. Hosea 6.3 declares, He will come to us like the rain like the spring rain watering the earth. Isaiah 44, 1-4 uses the same metaphor. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit 
on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. And that tree is growing by streams of water. You see it in Psalm 1. You see it at the end of the Bible in Revelation 22. You see it in other places as well. No water, no trees, no growth. So just as often as the Holy Spirit is compared to water, so God's people are often compared to, his backslidden people are often compared to a desert or a wilderness where there is no water. Isaiah 41, 17-20, The afflicted and needy are seeking water, but there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them myself. As the God of Israel, I will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and springs in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land fountains of water. I will put the cedar in the wilderness, the acacia and the myrtle and the olive tree. I will place the juniper in the desert together with the box tree and the cypress that they may see and recognize and consider and gain insight as well that the hand of the Lord has done this and the, Lord, the Holy One of Israel has created it. And one more instance, do, Isaiah 43, 18-21, Do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? I will even make a roadway in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I have given waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. I think about water and the analogy that is used, that God chose to use. Think in the mind of God uh, that this is planned in advance. God doesn't just make up stuff as he goes along. He doesn't just sort of form a planet and then go, let's see now, what next? Uh, I don't know. Let's just put this thing on it called water. Um, Let's, for some reason or other, make it such that people need water to survive and that they can't get along without it. Now, that's all pre-planned. That's baked into the cake. It's preordained. God doesn't just search around on his planet for analogies after the fact and go, I know what I could compare myself to. I'll compare myself to water. No, he makes the world with water so that in the fullness of time, He will use it as an analogy to communicate to his people that that's what they need and that the Holy Spirit that they need is like water. And rain, actually, that we're getting a lot of here, is actually a miracle. There's several problems that have to be overcome when it rains. There's a distance problem. For it to rain, water is evaporated off the ocean and carried to land, and it's often carried hundreds or even thousands of miles, and it can't evaporate before it's all dumped. And yet the water is always evaporating from the ocean, and yet it's not always raining. God has to do something special to make it actually work that way. There's a salt problem. If it gathers it off the ocean, there's all this salt in it. The salt has to be removed from it, 
If that were dropped on the earth, all the plants would die. There's a weight problem. If one inch of rain falls on a square mile of farmland during the night, it would be like 206,300,000 gallons of water, which is uh, 1.6 billion pounds. Now, if that fell on a square mile of farmland, it would obviously just crush everything under it if it all fell at once. So the water has to dribble out. And in order to do that, it gathers around dust particles that are infinitesimal uh, in their size. They're, they're extremely small, in other words. And then it just dribbles it out. But then there's a size problem. The droplets have to be big enough to actually fall for a mile or so without evaporating on the way down. And they can't be so big that they crush the plants. So they really kind of have to be the right size. And they have to coalesce around each other in order to get to that right size. So rain is really a miracle. And so is revival. So is rain coming down from heaven. It's a supernatural thing, not a natural thing. And we need revival. And by that I mean a Holy Spirit outpouring on us. And we need it to rain hard. The revivalism won't work. You know, the whipping it up by frenzied activity. Much like maybe the prophets of Baal leaping about on the altar and cutting themselves and raving wildly to try to get their god Baal to do something. That's revivalism. We need the kind of revival that God sends because men cannot make it rain. God sends rain. All our money and all in America here and all our ornate church buildings, our professionally done music, our incredible sound systems, our high-tech audio and video technology, our, our manifold programs that we have for every different age group, our religious busyness, all of this is just an empty facade hiding the spiritual bankruptcy. We are a desert wasteland. Where there is no water. There's a few bright spots here and there, a few bright individuals, churches that have found water deep underground somewhere. But the situation, by and large, is pretty dire because the drought is pretty severe. It hasn't rained in a long time. And you can only go so long without rain before you're dead. If the desert needs rain, what does the desert do about it? All a desert can do is lie there and be dead, right? But since this is an analogy and it's a metaphor and you don't press every component of a metaphor out to some corresponding reality in the spiritual realm, you can't press them too far because, of course... It's a metaphor for humanity and even for God's people who have quenched the Spirit. And with respect to God's people, we're not dead. We're alive. There's the smell of death, but we're, if we're Christians, we're alive in Christ Jesus. And we have not been forsaken of God. 
And we do have a will, and we do have a heart that's beating. We don't look to earth to produce rain. We don't look at each other. Well, you produce it. You produce it. We don't look downward, we look upward. That's where the rain comes from. And so I suppose being a desert, but also being believers who have hearts and who have a will, the thing that we can do is beg. It's not much. It's not an impressive thing, but what else is there to do? Beg. Water. Water. David wasn't hopeless. He said, Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly, early. In his condition, as he's on the run, fleeing from his father-in-law, his life in jeopardy, constantly moving about, he said, I will seek you. And he had little evidence of anything to indicate that circumstances would change for him. There was nothing that he could look to and say, oh, good news is just over the hill. In fact, it was quite the opposite. After the second time that he spared Saul's life, I believe, he said, I know that eventually he's going to kill me. There was just that sense that this is just hopeless. I can't run from him forever. This is impossible. And yet he said, I will seek you. I will seek you earnestly. And that's us. So let us join with David and seek him earnestly now. And may we hear him soon say, Drip down, O heavens, from above. And let the clouds pour down righteousness. Let the earth open up and salvation bear fruit and righteousness spring up with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and seek him earnestly.